Welcome to Hard Truths by Vertex. This is where we peel the layers and uncover raw, unobvious industry insights and venture capital knowledge across Southeast Asia and India. We interview some of the world's top leaders in tech, innovation, and capital formation to hear the stories of enlightening discoveries, as well as aha moments to help early stage entrepreneurs navigate their building journey. If you like what you hear, please click follow or subscribe. Hi, I'm Elise Tan, and I'm your host for this episode of Hard Truth by Vertex. I'm really pleased to be speaking with Pratik Gandhi, co-founder and COO at Niam. Niam is a global B2B money movement service that operates across 190 countries and more. It has climbed to unicorn status after raising 200 million US dollars in 2021. Vertex Venture Southeast Asia led Series A in Niam, which was actually called Interam back in 2016. Pratik, I believe that 2016 is also when you joined Yum. So um, tell us about the journey that it has been for you since you joined. Oh, great. I mean, the journey has been fantastic because I still recall that way back in 2016 when I had joined. The day I joined was the day that Prajit uh, picked up an office. He earlier used to work out of the Vertex office. Oh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> Our co-working space. Yeah, exactly, right? So, And the office that we had picked up was a dilapidated uh, part of town, <laughs> Tanjung Pagar, but uh, 28th floor of a building which doesn't exist anymore. Oh, and wow. where the lift would only go till 27th floor. And, we and had you climb a, up? We had a few rickety chairs and an office, uh, you know, which consisted of maybe a couple of tables. So that was our start. And from there to where we are now, uh, you know, where I consider ourselves to be, you know, one of the prime fintechs of Singapore, I think it's been a fantastic journey. Wow, you know, I, I'm so amazed by our Vertex founders because a lot of them start with very humble beginning and look where you are now from 2016 to 2021, climbing to unicorn status. And since then, you know, really a lot has changed and a, a lot is going on. So tell us more about what you do as COO at Niam. That's one of the difficult questions to answer because I think what happens is uh, whatever other people can't do ends up in my plate. <laughs> yes, so, I think that's the operation. So I actually started uh, in the company as uh, the chief business officer, then I became mm. the head of consumer. And uh, one of the things that's always been constant with me has been the finance function. It's always been with me, right? Yeah. Uh, and when I became the COO, the part about the operations and the customer success, customer services also came to me. Mm. And... Uh, um, and then over a period of time, I got compliance and uh, human resources also. Wow. So I have like these four big uh, mega uh, items that I now handle. Yes, and that's a lot. And I imagine, you know, Niam has grown so much and now even operating more than 190 countries around the world. I, I can't imagine, you know, the kind of uh, importance of your role. So I think it has a lot to do with what you did before Niam, right? So I'm really curious about your background. So I noticed that you spent the last 15 years in banking and 10 years prior in large corporates such as Xerox, PepsiCo and Tesla. So I want to ask you, you know, why startups? How did you end up in Niam? Oh, that's a great question, actually, because startups, um, well, actually, many of the companies that I joined earlier, even though they were big companies, but mm. I actually joined them at a very initial stage, right? So, for instance, uh, my first job was with Arthur Anderson, it was, I was amongst probably the first 15 or 20 people to join the Delhi office. 
from then on, I, uh, you know, the company that uh, you mentioned, PepsiCo, uh, you know, I was amongst probably the first 50 people to join. And then by the time I left in five years, it had become a 5,000 people outfit. Um, the entity I joined in City was actually not even a part of City at that point in time. It was actually another company, which uh, eventually got acquired by Citibank. Okay. And again, it was, you know, I was amongst the first few. So I've, I'm, I'm kind of used to the madness that comes and all the excitement for all the small successes that you get uh, in a startup. So for me, you know, being a, a part of a startup was was never difficult. So, you know, when I joined Instagram, um, it was never really, you know, too difficult for me to gel into the culture. Got it. How did the whole, you know, conversation with uh, Project come about? So it's a very interesting uh, conversation the way it started because um, so we were introduced by Fullerton which used to be my earlier company and uh, the background is I used to work out of the Bombay office of Fullerton and my family was based here in uh, Singapore and um, you know they uh, it, you know this whole thing about coming and going from Mumbai to uh. Singapore wasn't really working out so I told these guys, I said, I need something in Singapore. So they said, look, we have a very small office here, but we have just invested in another, like a small entity here in um, in Singapore, and we can introduce you to the CEO and see things if uh, work out. And um, uh, so they introduced me to Prajit. And, um, you know, as Prajit says that for the first 10 to 15 minutes, I was the one who was, you know, trying to tell him about what my background is. And for the next 45 minutes, he was trying to convince me to join him. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> so, and I think, uh, you know, if you look at it in terms of our complementary mm, skill sets, I think it's really worked out well mm. because, uh, you know, Prajit is a very outgoing person. He's very salesy. And uh, on the other hand, I have done a lot of this backend stuff as well. And I understand business. So it's really, I mean, I think the partnership has done uh, pretty well. And you mentioned about how Prajit is um, a different kind of character. And, you know, and obviously he do well in his role. But do you feel like sometimes, you know, you have to, there's a, you had to rein him in perhaps. <laughs> you, know? you have, I don't know, like, how do you balance it? If you, if you ask me indirectly whether we fight, we fight all the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's always that, uh, you know, indirect uh, thing. He's got his views, I've got my views, but mm. listen, at the end of the day, you know, I think we all have to understand the fact that there's only one captain of the ship, yeah. right? And what I know about, so one of the things that, uh, you know, I respect about Prajit is that uh, if you reason out something with him, yes, then, you know, he wouldn't unnecessarily say that, listen, I am already, I've taken a stance and I'm not going to change that stance. Mm, that doesn't right. happen. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there are many occasions when, you know, he comes back and says, I think you're right. I think we should, uh, you know, go back to what you were saying. So, but many times it's his word and, you know, that's fine. He's, like I said, there's only one captain of the ship and that's completely okay with me. Mm. But there's never been, there's never been an instance where we say, for instance, and that actually happened in, in one of the banks that I used to work for, where somebody said, you should uh, make a report which actually gave wrong information, okay? And uh, because the bank, you know, had this uh, structure where I could uh, talk to my business as well as my uh, main finance role head, uh, 
I complained and uh, you know that guy had to back off. Mm. Those kind of issues have never happened. So it's an issue of integrity, right? Integrity is never so. Prajit is he is holier than thou in mm. this respect, and in that respect, he and I both understand that. Listen, we are we are both we are both very integrally invested in this company, not just financially, but even with in terms of reputation. Yeah, it's a very highly regulated entity. Definitely, so there is nothing that we would do which would you know put that whole question mark. On the company's uh, future. Yeah, we are really glad to hear. Is it not easy? It's really not easy. I mean, in the world of business, a lot of people think about, um, you know, whatever it takes for growth, whatever it takes, right? But the truth is that to run a company for the long term, right? To to be able to um, uh, stand strong and and uh, really really be able to stand against any criticism is is important that we hold the integrity. And tell us more about it, you know. Um, so I understand that Naomi is able to move money because you have bank accounts open across the world. So how do banks partner with Niam? So you know, our go-to strategy or the most uh, ideal scenario is that we have one bank who gives us most bank accounts in most countries. But that obviously is not going to happen because. If there was such a bank, then we wouldn't. They, nobody would need us. Yes, right? That's right. We are the ones who are giving that 190 countries and 100 countries of real-time access, etc. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we go to every country and see which is the best bank or banks mm -hmm. in that location who can give that connectivity that we are looking for. Who've got the APIs, for instance, who are uh, which are uh, friendly for us to use, which we can consume. And uh, and then we partner with them. And our biggest moat is the fact that we've got licenses in many countries and relationships uh, with the banks in those countries to give us that real-time access where possible. And if not real-time, then at least on a backup basis, um, you know, so that the money can get paid for the beneficiary at a quickest basis. Mm -hmm. Got it. So one of the bigger moats is the fact that uh, the licensing uh, activity that we do ultimately takes us anything from actually it used to take us one year earlier mm. but i think for some reason it's taking more and more time so why why, is that? why? because i think regulators are becoming a little more cautious mm. in many cases got it um and uh, so i'll tell you one of the you know i don't want to name the the countries but in one case uh, i thought we had we had taken a long time when the regulator took us, took us one year. That was one of the first ones we did. The second one, in a similar geographical location, mm. took two years. And mm. we thought that was a lot. Then we went to another country, which was a, a developed country, and that took over three years. Wow. <laughs> and not just three years. They wanted some local representative to be set up over there. Mm. Very expensive location. So mm. we were paying... I don't know, maybe some 15, 20,000 US dollars for that one person to do nothing in a day. Wow. But just be there to talk in their local language mm. and just be available to answer any questions. I see. So, wow. You know, these are all things which uh, take a lot of time. And then, of course, the kind of our licenses also, you know, got differentiated. Uh, rather than simple money transfer licenses, we started getting EMI, which actually allows us to hold funds like a bank. I see. Uh, and then it became such that, you know, we could also issue cards. Uh, so it became even more advanced than yeah. that. Um, so I think licensing is one thing which is really 
key for us connectivity so any 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 entity for instance today which wants a worldwide connectivity and they want not just a payout but also an issuing business they have nowhere to go but to come to you know us i think i think if i were to be not too modest about it i'd <laughs> say that uh, i think we are the only ones mm. which have the length and the breadth as far as the product and the geography is concerned Yes, I think it's so amazing that uh, Niam, you know, over the years you have built such a strong foundation, whether it's in terms of uh, the licenses or the products or navigating, you know, the different landscape across the world. Yeah, I think I think that is really impressive. And uh, just uh, just want to understand, you know, in the future, do you see banks coexisting with fintech, or would it be a different future altogether? No, I think it's a matter of imperative. I think that uh, both will have to work together. I'll tell you. I mean we in most cases cannot work without banks. Mm. Unfortunately banks consider us to be competition in many of the cases. So rather than working with us to try and see how we can you know work in a partnership uh you know they try and see us as competition and try and block our ways. Mm. But the ones Got who it. partner with us actually realize the true potential. I also wonder, you know, uh, what has been the hard truth about being banking. So, you know, of course, you mentioned about you were in large corporations. Yeah, but tell tell us because you've been banking for a long time. Banks, at least I can talk about the ones that I have worked with, um, are very organized. Mm. <laughs> uh, I'm being nice. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, they have processes that work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right. But if you look at on the you know if you're really looking for the hard truths one of the hard truths is they are super siloed so like i was part of consumer bank they would never talk to the corporate bank or investment bank or anyone else from that matter right uh, they'd be completely siloed and you know just completely get cut off the other big thing about the banking and especially these days the small changes which are happening in the banking sector today by nimble fintechs like us yeah is slowly but surely taking away the business of the banking industry and they are they're like deer in headlights they're not able to see the changes mm. and uh, uh i think they'll end up losing a lot of their businesses unless unless like there are some you know who are willing to partner with with fintechs like us as well and see how best to work you know in in best of both the worlds and i I remember the CEOs of one of the most successful banks in Singapore uh talking once that uh, that banks are the ones who've got the customers fintechs don't have customers when they start right mm. uh so but what what the banks don't have is the agility the technology in many cases so how do you marry the two in such yeah. a way that banks and the fintechs both work well Mm. So I think that'll be the the key thing. So the hard truth is the banks really have to transform pretty quickly. And I wonder, right? Um, because as a COO, you must have gone through a lot of different incidents. So you, um, where where it's very memorable, right? Can you tell us something that's memorable at Neom? Um, look, there have been instances, for instance, and I have, those are indelible memories, where, um, for instance. we almost ran out of funds yes. a few times and yes. uh those are times when as a team you come closer together mm. because you've gone through that hardship and uh 
you know, so this one instance when, for instance, there were three VCs lined up and uh, one by one, all three of them disappeared. And when was that? That was the first time? No, this was not the first time. This mm. was 2017, perhaps. Okay. So one year after I joined and I told Pajita, I said, listen, yeah, if you if you want to cut my salary, it's okay. And please understand one thing. My, you know, when I joined the company, I was already at 50% of what I was earning in my corporate job. Mm. So I told him, yeah, listen, if you want to cut the salaries, uh, you know, that's fine. He says, it's okay, we'll see. And um, and then, by the way, Genping was the one who introduced us to one of his friends in GSR and that meeting took off very well. Mm, and then we just went to Beijing and uh, did the presentation to the wider team, the investment committee. And uh, within a couple of weeks, we had the money. But that whole time period when we were thinking, will we, won't we mm. last? Yeah is something that's uh, pretty indelible and, you know, very difficult to forget. And I think it's really a period of uncertainty. Yes, exactly. And uh, for our audience benefit, Gun Ping Liu is my colleague and also partner at Vertex Venture Southeast Asia. He and what we, what we also say is that he's uh, the part-time yes, uh, co-founder. co-founder. <laughs> yeah, uh, so he led the deal uh, in Niam when uh, they are raising Series A. So, I, you know, when you mentioned about how Niam uh, ran out of money, uh, I remember that Prajit, you know, recently published about the three times when Niam nearly ran, ran out of money. And I think 2017 was the first time. And then secondly, it was the pandemic in 2020. So I think that was when you would truly take a pay cut, right? Yeah. And how, that, how did that feel? And uh, how long was the pay cut for? You know, how, how was the whole journey leading up to the point that you finally raised uh, 20 million and, you know, really propelling um, Niam to the unicorn status? Uh, so those were difficult times as well, right? I mean, uh, the background is the fact that COVID had hit. We had no clue how to manage it. We didn't know what the impact on the business is going to be. And, um, but we were almost certain that what the rest of the world is saying is that it's going to be deleterious to the health of our industry. And, uh, but we were also seeing that the volumes were actually going up. Yes. So we didn't understand maybe it's just temporary or whatever else. Mm. And uh, uh, so, and the prelude to this, all this was the fact that one of the larger rounds that we were negotiating at that point in time had fallen through. Oh, I see. Right. So, uh, I don't, I, it was a large round uh, that we were looking for at that point in time. And one of the larger entities of the world were the ones who were leading that round. Mm. So here we were, short runway. And what we were sure about is that we want to be the last one standing. So, and one thing that uh, we don't like to do is to lay off people, especially in times when, you know, the rest of the world is in a bad shape, then, um, you know, if you just, let people off, then what do they do? They've got families to support. So we said the most equitable solution is to get an equal um, pay cut, which we, you know, we decided was 30%. Rajit himself took a 30, 50% cut, right? To be uh, the one to take the maximum. And uh, the one good thing that we did, of course, was that uh, we told everyone that whatever it is that you're losing by way of your 30%, we will compensate that by giving you two times of that as ESOPs. So, but within a few months, we actually saw that, listen, it's actually doing pretty well. I mean, <laughs> the business is doing well. Uh, there's nothing which is negative. So why do we have to worry? 
So we normalized within about I think six seven months. Ah, got it. And uh, people who earned the ESOPs at that point in time, which didn't include seniors like me, um, I mean they they actually earned good money. I mean, yeah. you know, because not only did they get double the mm-hmm. amount that they lost, but the valuation of the company itself went. Why is the hard truth about being a CEO here? I think the hard truth uh, really is the fact that sometimes. you take uh, stances which are you know which could be not very uh, popular in the short term right so for instance uh, one of the things that we are trying to do for instance right now is to see how we can turn to profitability right mm-hmm. and uh, uh, that means being super careful about what kind of expenses we do what kind of people we hire how many people we hire it's not always an easy decision to put across to somebody who really feels that they need the people right now yeah and uh, <clears throat> then we have to go back and try and check that uh, you know hey listen all over the world people are firing people so why are you why are you so intent on getting uh, you know someone to such an expensive resort to be uh, hired right understand. now understand so there are these instances which always happen but on the whole i think uh, uh i think because of the fact that i've been there in the business also for so long uh people do understand and appreciate you know if there is a if there is a stance which is taken and um, i think generally there is there's nothing so hard that i have to <laughs> worry about it when i go back home well, niam niam has grown so much over the years and uh during the pandemic I realized that when I was doing research, you know, you guys have made some uh, acquisition, right? And one acquisition was actually the company Isaris. Isaris, yes. Yeah, and there was a time when travel was, you know, all doom and gloom. So what what led to the decision? That's another, you know, another another indelible memory which is part of our psyche here. So again, I told you what the background was, right? COVID had hit us. Funding had failed. People had got their salaries cut. But one thing that we were sure about is that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. You know, there is an adage about uh, never ever wasting a crisis. And uh, what we could see was that, you know, travel industry is in a pretty bad shape. But if you look at the law of averages, it will eventually come back to where it used to be. And except that we are when you are in the middle of a crisis you never realize that you can actually come out of it right so uh so we started talking to you know people in the market saying you know we are available in case people want to uh, you know sell us something at that point in time to remind you once again we were running short of money ourselves yes <laughs> okay so for us to ask for you know for us whether we can buy another company was a very uh you know i should i say courageous uh, in a very uh, simple terms um and uh, as luck would have it we had these two opportunities which were both in the travel sector and as you said travel was a very bad four letter word in covid right and this company actually had negative revenues so which means that they were actually returning more of customer funds earlier bookings than they were doing more fresh bookings um so you know but we said we'll you know we'll we'll be very interested in the company and uh we bid for the company and they asked for a fairly largeish one time non refundable fee which we ended up giving and uh, 
you know, I can tell you, we didn't have a lot more money lying in the bank account <laughs> uh, after that. Uh, but the good part was we were, you know, it was not a foolhardy decision because mm-hmm. uh, I know that Vertex had already come back and said, listen, if you really want money, we can give you, you know, support. We were already talking to a few, uh, you know, large uh, VCs at that point in time. And this was just pre the unicorn status in any case. So, and we've always been super confident about, uh, even in the worst of times, we've been confident about our survivability. We never thought that we'll we'll not survive. Yes, we had those moments where, you know, you'd be uh, worried about, hey, you know, where's the next salary you're going to come from, but never about the survivability of the business as such. So, uh, so you know, the, the business did come back the way that we had anticipated and it came back earlier than we had thought because the COVID effects, I mean, people underestimated the human tendency to try and become as normal as possible. So people wanted to travel, travel came back with a bang. Now Revenge both of these traveling. two... Huh? Revenge traveling. Yeah. Revenge traveling. <laughs> so both of these two companies today are not only cashy creative, accretive, but they've also given us you know, some very strong positioning within the markets in which they are based out of. So for instance, Europe, we were not very great in, but because we acquired XRS, we became pretty strong uh, in Europe. Uh, India also, we didn't have a license, but when we acquired the erstwhile Wirecard entity there, uh, we became, you know, pretty powerful. And uh, uh, along with that came some very good teams by the way. So, and those teams are doing pretty well in our company at this stage as well. So all in all, I think it was a, you know, it was a well thought out strategy. People may, you know, go back and say, listen, was it foolhardy? I don't think it was. I think it was well thought out. And, uh, but it also helps that it worked out well in the end. (laughs) And, you know, when you're sharing, I'm just so impressed by the courage that both of you and the management team have taken, right? And really preparing the company even before you know that, uh, you know, what's going to happen next. And in my mind, uh, I just see this jigsaw puzzle, like how you are seeing the gaps in your puzzle and really gathering the pieces and then putting them together so that it's a more complete piece. Absolutely, absolutely. And and remember that uh, what we acquired was not a newbie company. It had, uh, at its peak, they were you know doing some good revenues um, and very stable processes, good people. And that was that was the one thing that we learned out of the due diligence that we did that uh, the company is pretty solid. It's just going through a bad economic time. And, uh, you know, from from my time in the investments also, if you, if you look for companies which are temporarily in some kind of uh, disorder, then eventually they'll end up, you know, giving you a lot of benefit in the, in the end. Great. And, and I think, you know, as now make more and more acquisition, and I believe that your role as a COO will be partly to kind of integrate these new businesses. So what's the hard truth about that, working with acquired businesses? So I'll tell you, my hard truth comes from my being part of a company which was acquired, which was, you know, the entity I told you in Citibank. And one of the, the fantastic things that I learned from that experience is because Citibank had been fed a lot of stories that, hey, listen, these company, you know, these people, we don't know what they're doing. We don't know how they're making so much money. They must be doing something wrong. Uh, But when the first level of interactions happened between the most senior people in city India and us, 
they realize that actually there's no truths in the fact that it's all you know bad uh, management they actually liked us so what they did very wisely is they put up walls around us and they basically said these guys are not to be disturbed and you know during that period was the most golden period for the company that you know we became you know as part of citibank we sort of we also blossomed very well so that was a big learning for me as well and this is what we did so integrations by the way elise they they fail uh not integrations but acquisitions fail because the company which is acquiring tends to put their strength behind and to say that you guys are wrong we guys are right because we are the ones who have acquired you right and not take them on merit uh we were absolutely certain that we don't want that to happen so for the first one year we did not interfere at all with the businesses that we with which we acquired right and the evidence was overwhelming because they were doing so fantastically well uh without any integration of compliance policies and uh you know anything right you know uh, they had their own financial systems for instance uh which were not as great as us but hey listen they'd been in in existence for 18 years and they'd done very well thank you right so i think uh that's been the great hard truth that you let companies be uh don't impose your will and when the timing is right you know let them feel comfortable let you be comfortable then you come together and see how you can you know work for a better company together so same thing we did with wirecard that continues to be you know almost a standalone entity right now but not to say that we don't look at the numbers or you know we are confident about them like city was confident about the company that they had acquired we were confident about the back end systems and the people and that's how we gave them the independence to run and when i was speaking to you know many founders i realized that there's some you know similar trends that's going through all of you i think one is about really recognizing strengths you know and also empowering people and i think that that's what you you are showing through the actions of uh, working with the two entities that you have acquired exactly exactly yeah. and, and when we empower people when we put people in the right place you definitely see them blossoming yeah. and it's a wonderful thing and like i said i mean i think those people have also done well in the larger neem context mm. so the person who used to be the the chairman for xrs is now the head of the entire combined entities for europe ah. the person who was the chief operating officer for xrs is doing a sterling job with us as the head of global cards business for neem and xrs mm. right and these are people who've done like they've really done they've given us a lot of value addition yeah uh, to the rest of our business as well mm. so you know i think we are really pleased with how it worked out so what do you think is a hard truth about uh, running your own startup you mean besides uh, traveling the lowest cost uh, airlines and <laughs> staying in the cheapest hotels uh, i think you understand the value of money a lot more yeah you understand that uh, uh you know like you're used to i'll tell you when i was in uh, the biggest corporate jobs traveling business class was never an issue right it's like taken for granted, taken for granted. yeah uh, and uh, we in fact argued in one of the companies that even domestic travel in india whether it is for one hour or two hours should be should be business 
<laughs> right? And these excesses tend to happen in any bigger companies. So I think you learn the value of your work because you know that you are part of, you're the most critical part of the entire structure, especially if it's your own outfit. Yeah. Uh, so what you do, you'll be able to get the benefit and see the result of it pretty quickly. Uh, and of course, the fact that, uh, you know, the results can be very outsized uh, whenever they do happen in the right way. And uh, then, of course, the fact that you have to be super careful about expenses. I think there are a lot of, lot of positives in, in trying out and trying to be an entrepreneur uh, by yourself. Yes. So Pratik, you know, you mentioned about you catching the entrepreneurial bug twice. So I was just wondering, what do you mean by that? You know, like, how did it happen? How do you feel? So there's a, a bit of a personal story behind this. Uh, my dad uh, was quite entrepreneurial. So he actually used to work for a large uh, newspaper back in uh, Delhi. And uh, he was doing well, but he always felt that he wasn't earning enough to support uh, a good life for all of us. So he had these side hustles that he used to keep doing. And one of them was uh, something that I found interesting. And I was a kid, right? Uh, so what he said is that any company which wants to bid for uh, tenders with the government, right? In the pre-internet days, there wasn't a central repository for it. So for instance, anybody based out of Mumbai, like a, like a manufacturer, if they had to bid for a tender, they could do it with the help of some uh, advertisement for a tender which would get published in a Mumbai paper, mm. but wouldn't, wouldn't know if there was anything that was happening in their industry, for instance, in the south of India. So since he was in the newspaper industry, he had this idea, he said, I'm going to get newspapers from all over India. So he used to get some 40, 50 papers a day. Mm. And uh, he used to cut the tenders. And I used to help him. And I used to put them in categories of different industries. Then we used to paste them on a piece of paper. And then we used to do something called cyclostyle. I don't know if it's, it's even, you even know what that means. But uh, it used to take, it used to take uh, a long time for it to be printed and then we used to fold it and put it into envelopes and I used to put the stamp of under postal certificate and then I used to take my bike and put them in bulk as a like a cold mail, wow. a real mail okay. into many of these companies who might be interested in giving us a subscription service. Oh, wow. And uh, Brilliant. so when kids were of my age were, you know, playing football and cricket, mm -hmm. I was actually helping my father uh, at that point in time. And I really, it's not as if I was missing out on my plays. I really used to like mm -hmm. helping him do all that. Uh, and then what I saw is that uh, maybe a week, 10 days after we had done the first batch of uh, the posting, uh, the first check came in. Wow. And the joy that gave to yes. everyone yeah. uh, in the household was amazing. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, the first time when you could see the result of whatever you worked hard yeah. on uh, came out and... Uh, and then over the next few days, a whole stream of these checks came out. So that really, you know, showed that if you work hard enough, you can actually get uh, the right results. Mm. And that actually put the, the seeds of being an entrepreneur in me. And, and if I were to ask you to describe the culture at Nyam, how would you describe? 
I'll tell you that it's an evolving story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I believe so. Yeah. Because I'll tell you why. Because uh, you know we were a couple of hundred of people uh, till a couple of years ago, mm. right? And then not only did we expand, but we also acquired these companies, uh, which brought in a lot of people. We got a lot of senior people yeah. uh, replaced also, and we got uh, you know newer and newer people. So. What's the what's the culture? How do you describe it? So I'll, I'll tell you what it is that we feel, and these are not things that I have said. But if you ask somebody who's been in the system for about six months, you know, I think what they'll say about the culture is, a is extremely open. Mm. So it's not like a bank where there are hierarchies, mm. and you know, you need permissions to speak to some senior person. Anyone can approach. Rajit, me, any other senior in the company, mm. even if it's an intern, uh, we are happy to talk to them, right? There's never airs around us, so we are happy to listen to their ideas. We welcome these ideas. Um, so Absolutely. that's the one part of thing which is the positive aspect of the culture. Definitely. The the negative aspect, if I may call it that, actually it's not only negative. It's not really negative also, right? Because <laughs> so the madness, which is a part of any startup. Yeah. So the fact that we'll always try and punch above our weight, <laughs> that we'll try and juggle several balls at the same time, mm. are all things that it's not something which is the cup of tea for everyone. Yeah. Some people are very structured. They'll say, "I'm going to do this today, and I will only do that and nothing yeah. else." I'm sorry that doesn't work in a company like mm -hmm. us. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think these are two things. Besides that, we have value systems. So we have what we call simply better together, which is a very catchy frame, which mm. basically means that, uh, you know, simply means that how do you make uh, things simple rather than make them complex? Right. Uh, better stands for which processes that you can work on to make uh, things more efficient. And uh, together means because we are in so many different time zones, different mm -hmm. cultures, different races, uh, different countries. How do you bring everyone together so they all work together for the same objective? Mm -hmm. So simply better together. I love That's that. Really great, I yeah. love the slogan "simply better together." Yeah. Thank you so much, you know, for spending your time with us. And I want to go back to you know your mention uh, about people being too structured. But I love that, you know, what you are bringing to the table because I'm sure you are a structured and organized person, but at the same time being able to handle the chaos that's happening all around you. And even when I speak to you, I'm sure at the back of your mind, you know, something you're thinking about work and operations, but you just have this calm, you know, persona that you exude uh, during the interview. And I think that is impressive. Thank you very much. So, you right. I am thinking about the things <laughs> which are going on in the backdrop. <laughs> yeah. So thank you again, Prati. It's so nice to have you on our podcast. It was absolutely superb to be here. Thank you so much, Elise. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Before we close, do remember to check out the podcast notes via the link in the episode description. We have for you the entire episode transcript, bite-sized summaries, and a wealth of other resources and content that we're sure you'll love. Also, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please do spread the word and give us a thumbs up. It would help others find the show and mean a lot to us. Thank you for joining us. This is Hot Truths by Vertex. See you next time. <laughs>